Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. It was a chilly morning as my dad and I set out for our elk hunting expedition in the rugged wilderness of northern New Mexico. The forest was dense and overgrown, with old logging trails winding through the trees. We were in the middle of the day, still hunting with our eyes peeled for any signs of elusive prey. As I walked along the trail, I caught a glimpse of something unusual through a small window in the trees and brush. About 100 yards away, there it was, a blue day pack like one of those Jansport backpacks, lying on a fallen tree. The sight was perplexing as it could only be seen from the exact spot I happened to be standing. I motioned my dad over to confirm what I was seeing. To ensure I wasn't just imagining things, I quickly marked the spot where I saw the pack with two crossed sticks and a branch pointing towards it. My dad arrived at my side and squinted through the foliage, verifying the mysterious blue pack's presence. Curiosity got the better of us, and we decided to investigate further. My dad would make his way over to the fallen tree while I stayed put, ready to guide him if needed. He navigated through the thick brush and deadfall, carefully making his way to the location I had marked. 
As he reached the spot where the day pack should have been, he found nothing. The pack had vanished into thin air. But something weird happened. Behind him, there was a creature. It was over eight foot tall, brown, hairy, and muscular. I'm skeptic when it comes to Sasquatch existence, but this one was real. Perplexed, I gestured towards him and yelled, Behind you! He didn't hurt me! Scared! I ran towards him, but when I arrived, it vanished. My dad asked me what happened. Why am I scared? And I wanted to tell him, but of fear that he'd not believe me, I kept silent. Why, so this happened last year, but I didn't have read it at the time, so I figured I'd share it now. I'm confident it was a Bigfoot, but I could be wrong. So I live surrounded by the woods. We only have a few neighbors here and there. Me, my cousin, and my nephew were outside, and then they went in, so I was outside alone. I was releasing a snail we found. I released the snail, then heard my dog barking, so I looked up. There it was. By our tree line stood a figure. I don't know exactly how tall it was, but I'd say if not six feet, almost six feet tall, it didn't really have the shape of a human. We have hardly any bears in my area. And if it was possibly a bear, our dogs would be going crazy barking. But with this, they ran from whatever it was. I looked away, looked back, and the figure was gone. I quickly went inside because I was freaked out. Also a bit excited because I've always loved cryptids and Bigfoot, so the fact that I possibly saw one made me excited. But that night, my brother and his two friends decided to play hide and seek in the woods. It was at around 1 a.m. I know it's weird to be playing hide and seek that late, especially in the woods, but they did it anyway. Anyways, the next morning they said they swore they saw a figure run past them in the woods. Could it be Bigfoot? I live with my family, but our house is in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by woods. During hot summer nights, we sleep with the windows open, just the bug screen between us and the great outdoors. Deer and elk sometimes bed down right outside the bedroom window because predators will not come that close to the house. We are used to hearing elk snores. Yes, they do snore, and deer wheezes in the middle of the night. This one dark summer night, though. We were woken up by something that sounded like a gibbering, demented child. It paced around the house, and we could hear the dry grass crunching right outside the window. The thing moved on after a while, but the weird semi-human noises it made were unsettling, to say the least. I saw a thunderbird when I was a kid. So I spent a lot of time, Star, gazing as a kid one summer. My stepdad bought me a really nice telescope with a camera objective to look at the moon and stars with. One night we went out to the hydroelectric dam 40 miles from the nearest town to get some telescopic pictures of the Milky Way. The moon was out in about half illumination without a cloud in the night sky. We were out there until 1 a.m. and we were packing up the telescope and other gear when something with a simply enormous wingspan sped silently over our heads very quickly. It was pitch black with yellow wings and cast a shadow on the ground from the moonlight. It was gone in almost an instant. We looked at each other and both exclaimed in harmony, What in the F was that? I have never heard of any kind of aircraft with a wingspan that large or even one that could move in such complete silence. Even gliders make some kind of wind noise. We were far enough away from any airport or military base for anything to be flying that low. It was like something not of this world. It creeps me out to this day, some twenty years later. When I was ten or eleven, I was sitting at the top of a berm alone overlooking a beautiful valley. I must have sat there for a few minutes in the tall grass, soaking it up 
I panned my head to the left slowly and roughly 75 meters away. I could see the ears, eyes, and snout of a dogman sitting in the grass, looking right back at me. I darted back to safety as fast as I could, but when I got there I realized that the cougar didn't give chase. It must have just been soaking up the scenery as well. I was working in the Magnetti Morelli facility in Pulaski, Tennessee, late evening. The date was January 16, 2016. I walked to the restroom near my work area. Upon entering the employee entrance, make a left turn in the first hallway, go through the next set of double doors, and turn right until you see a heavy steel door. I walked to the restroom and no one was there. In preparation for going back to the floor, I was washing my hands. That's when I felt someone watching me. I turned to look at a shiny silver baseball cap that was flat on top. I thought it was a ghost trying to see me and jumping back quickly with the tip of the brim exposed. My eyes caught sight of a man wearing a silver suit jacket, trousers, gloves, and low-top converse, like shoes made of light gray silver shades. His eyes did not blink. He quickly turned his face in the corner of the bulkhead and was afraid, quivering as I looked at him four feet away. I said, I didn't mean to frighten you, but I'm about to leave and it's all right. I'm shy too. I'm about to be done so I can get out of your way. I walked back to wash my hands. So he peeked. I thought he must really be ridiculed and humiliated by some of the other employees. But why is he working here if so? I have never seen him on this shift and didn't hear the big heavy steel door open with the machine's noise. He was not there when I walked in. He was not a ghost and intelligently moved. He made scuff sounds with his clothing touching the wall and was a solid flesh being. Then I said, I'm leaving now so the restroom is all yours. At a distance of about 11 feet, I walked toward the bulkhead to start my way out. Then another employee opens the heavy steel door and the human-like entity darts from behind the wall and slides for a split second. He looks at me up and down and at my face nervously as if to say you are not supposed to see me. He had long pointed ears and a thin bony pushed up nose and no hair around the cap edges. There was no emblem on any clothing. He quickly swung his head around to see if the employee had seen him yet. I saw a portal opening as he took those few steps between the urinal and the first toilet wall. He ducks his head slightly and leaps in to disappear. There's no way I can take this truth and the unknown to my grave. On a trail in the Angeles National Forest with a friend about a mile in, we hadn't seen anyone else since we entered. While rounding what we thought would be a secluded corner, my friend pulled out a joint and went to light up. The noise of the lighter sparking caused something up the trail to turn around quickly. I couldn't tell what it was right away because the lighting was dappled from trees above and it was colored the same as the trail and rock. I grabbed my friend's arm and quietly said, Stop, stand up, don't turn around, walk backward slowly. About thirty feet in front of us was a cougar easily bigger than any dog I've ever seen, save a Great Dane or Bernese. But the musculature on it was otherworldly compared to any dog. It wasn't crouched like it was going to come for us. It was turned halfway, with its back arched, the way a house cat sizes up another house cat before they fight. We backed up staring at the thing for what felt like forever, but was only probably three. Four seconds before it realized we weren't coming towards it anymore and turned tail. It bounded up what I thought was a sheer 20-foot cliff with such ease it made my mind truly spin at the power of nature and thankful I wasn't asked to test it. We speed, walked back to the trailhead with our heads on such a swivel. They rightly should have popped off. I was in Fort Lewis, Washington during officer candidate school. After a long day of patrols in the pines, my platoon had set up a cigar-shaped outpost and hunkered down for the night. 
I had second watch with my buddy Brian from Texas. We had set up a defensive position about 10 meters of the tip of the outpost and set up our M60. Our position was hunkered on the edge of this timber line that overlooked a meadow that was about 1,000 men. Wide by 200 M or so deep, the meadow then was bordered by another thick line of timber. Now I must preface, we were in training and going to perform a raid on a simulated enemy village the next day. Our weapons were loaded with blanks and we all had blank firing adapters on the muzzles. How the training worked is there were volunteers from other local army units who would play OPFOR and react to your presence accordingly with simulated gunfights, ambushes, reactions to contact, indirect fire, etc. Brian and I were fully expecting to get attacked that night by the opfer. This was a common tactic to hit when trainees were tired and visibility was poor. However, that night was a full moon, and Brian and I had snuck ground coffee into our pockets for later consumption. Our meadow was lit up by the glow of the moon. We had perfect visibility of the entire field of fire. Our defensive position was seemingly impregnable. We had overwatch. We had cover and concealment, and most importantly, we were wide awake. We were ready for anything the OPFOR threw at us. At about one in the morning, a low fog rolled in blanketing the meadow. The crisp night air punctuated the clarity of the moonlight. Brian and I were watching the meadow when he tapped my shoulder. He whispered in my ear, Do you see that? He pointed his finger up to the opposing tree line, where we could see slight movement along the line. I squinted my eyes and could make out shadowy figures slowly advancing towards our position. Brian pushed the safety off the M60, and I hunkered down behind my rifle to get a better look. We counted five, no, three. No, maybe just four figures seemingly gliding out of the timber and onto the meadow. They were hunched over and slowly creeping towards us. The shadows of the trees still obscured the details of the figures. We were sure the OPFOR were conducting a raid on us, and they wanted to maybe take it easy on us, but to cross an open field was ludicrous and poor form. It was just too easy. Didn't these soldiers know they were about to be illuminated perfectly by the light of the full moon, and then would be easy targets for two OKACS candidates? We watched the figures get closer to the light. Only maybe 50 more meters till the shadows ended and we would have positive target ID and would engage. Brian whispered over to me. Where are their weapons? Brian was right. They appeared to be unarmed. Well, wait. Where they? They've got something in their hands. Is that a stick? I hissed back. We waited to see what these OPFOR had. The OPFOR finally crossed the shadows and entered the lit up meadow less than 100 M from our position according to our sector sketch. The figures appeared in full visibility of us. My eyes grew big as I realized what I was seeing. The figures were dressed in dusky brown loose-fitting outfits and had what appeared to be small spears and axes. What was most unnerving was their faces were painted bright red and white, which glowed almost fluorescently under the full moon. I sucked in air! Brian screamed contact and leapt loose with a pig. The machine gun fire ripped through the calm of the still night air, the muzzle flash blinding us both. I lined up my sights on my rifle and fired several shots in succession of the Miss 60. After about 20 seconds or so, we quit firing and surveyed the area. The meadow was empty. The figures were gone. Nowhere to be seen. Brian and I were both shaking. We looked around. No enemy soldiers to be seen, and perhaps even more strange, none of our platoon. Or the cadre had woken from the cacophony of gunfire. Brian and I hunkered down closer and waited for the inevitable second wave. The fog rolled out. What was that? I hissed. I don't know, Brian said. We waited for them to come back. They never did. Our watch ended after another hour of being frozen to our guns. Eyes peeled on the meadow. We tried to sleep unsuccessfully. The next morning we asked if anyone heard any gunfire or commotion the night before. No one heard a thing.
I was on my way home from Chester, West Virginia, with my girlfriend. We were on RT-68 between East Liverpool, Ohio, and Midland, Pennsylvania, along the Ohio River. It was in December 2010. The time was around 3 a.m., and a thing that looked like a black angel flew in front of my truck. It was about six feet tall and was so close we both ducked. Whatever it was came from the riverside of the road. I wanted to go to the Midland police, but my girlfriend said they would think we were crazy. We often talk about this, but that was as far as it went. One time, when I was heading from Chicago to St. Louis on I-55, I had to pee really bad. Now I do this trip a lot, so I have a routine route. But this time, I was traveling late at night into the early morning. So I stopped at a rest stop to pee, which is something I never do. It was a smaller one with a little playground next to the bathrooms and vending machines. As I walked up to the bathroom... A lady was sitting at a table smoking a cigarette in very trashy clothing and gave me a hey, honey. I ignored her, went to the bathroom, and then headed back to my car. On the way out, the same lady was sitting at the same table except this time with a six, seven-year-old girl who was dressed how a six or seven-year-old girl should dress. I put my head down and immediately called the police just completely creeped me out that I was most likely feet away from a child s trafficking operation. I remember one time my aunt told me this freaky story. My aunt and her friends were coming back from the club late at night, and the club was located about an hour drive from home. As they were driving back on the highway, they noticed a girl that was walking alongside the road. Concerned, they pulled over a couple feet in front of her, and my aunt got out to go talk to the girl to see where she's heading. But when she got out, the girl was gone. There was nowhere she could have gone since the road is surrounded by murky water on both sides. Confused and frightened, she quickly got back in the car and told them to drive. I remember the day when I was returning home from my sister's funeral, feeling utterly exhausted. As I drove, I started noticing shadows and strange movements on the road ahead, which made me feel uneasy. Deciding to take a break, I stopped at a nearby rest area. I turned off the car's engine and lay back, hoping to get some rest. The next thing I knew, I was looking down at myself inside the car. My head was back, eyes shut, and mouth wide open. To my shock, there was some kind of craft next to the car, and I saw beings holding something that emitted a beam of white light directed into my mouth. They seemed to be communicating with each other, saying things like that she had many lessons to learn. I couldn't comprehend what was happening. The being spoke about how I needed to experience cancer, as if it was part of some important process of learning and growth. They kept repeating phrases about the significance of these lessons I had to go through. In the midst of this bizarre encounter, I found myself conversing with a being that had soft, tanned skin. The beings were humanoid in appearance, with large eyes, but no hair. The next thing I knew, I was back in the car, and I continued my drive home, arriving at 3 a.m. The experience left me feeling shaken and confused. In the following days, I couldn't shake off the eerie feeling that something unusual had occurred during that time. Unfortunately, in the future, my fears came true as I was diagnosed with breast cancer and underwent an operation. The memory of the encounter with those enigmatic beings haunted me during my recovery. While I managed to overcome the ordeal, the experience remains a mystery to this day leaving me wondering about the true nature of those beings and the lessons they spoke of. On August 14, 1986, I went for a morning walk at Cape Blanco Beach, like any other day. The cool ocean breeze brushed through my hair as I enjoyed the peacefulness of the early hours. 
Little did I know that this simple stroll would lead to a life-changing encounter. Approaching the north end of the beach, something unusual caught my eye. Two large sets of side-by-side tracks in the soft sand. They were massive, at least 18 inches long, unlike anything I had ever seen before. Excitement and curiosity rushed through me as I wondered if these could be the legendary Bigfoot tracks. Determined to uncover the truth, I followed the tracks as they led away from the shore and into the dense forest bordering the beach. The tall trees cast shadows and the rustling of leaves beneath my feet was the only sound. The fresh tracks confirmed I was on the trail of something extraordinary. Walking for two miles, my heart pounded with anticipation. The forest seemed to engulf me, creating an atmosphere of suspense and wonder. Despite the excitement, I couldn't shake a sense of unease, feeling like an intruder in this mysterious realm. Suddenly, the tracks vanished. There were no signs of where the creature might have gone. Disappointed yet determined, I searched the surrounding area for more clues, but found nothing. It was as if the creature had disappeared into thin air. Feeling watched, I continued my search, driven by the desire to unravel the secrets hidden within the woods. Hours passed, and with the sun climbing higher in the sky, I reluctantly decided to turn back. Although I didn't find concrete evidence of Bigfoot's existence, the encounter left an indelible mark on my soul. This occurred in Oakland, California in November 2016, where my wife's parents live. There had been several shootings in the area, more than normal, and the funeral home on International Bug had been getting a lot of business. My in-laws were driving through Oakland at around 2 a.m. in the morning. My mother-in-law worked as a live and hospice nurse and only had a day or so off. She was coming back at 2 a.m. after having the evening off. While they were driving to her job, they saw a beautiful young woman standing on the corner next to the funeral home who was very well dressed. They saw her at the corner while they were stopped at the intersection and noticed that the woman smiled and then waved at them. They also noticed that her eyes were totally black. My in-laws were frightened and drove away as fast as they could. My father-in-law drops off my mother-in-law at her work and wonders if that ghost woman he saw at the corner will be there on the way back. He had to go through that same intersection. On his way back, she was still there at the corner. This time, he was stuck at the light at the intersection. She again waved to him, and he noticed again she had black eyes. It seemed like she was trying to get him to come over and pick her up. Naturally, when the light turned green, he sped out of that intersection to get home. No one seems to know who she is, but they all seem to agree that her funeral was probably through the funeral home there on that street. As to why she was on that street between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., I think she was looking for victims. My older brother Mark disappeared when I was just seven. The last memory I have of him comes from a lazy Saturday afternoon in the summer of 2008. He was on our backyard porch with a bunch of his high school friends, eating ice cream cones and arguing about horror movies or something. I, I don't know. I never paid much attention to their conversations, but I do remember they were excited about going to their first real party later that night. I came outside to give Mark a gift, a charm bracelet I'd made for him from a series of strung, together Lego blocks. For good luck, I told him. Mark looked at the bracelet. I'd scrawled letters on it in Sharpie, one letter per block. Together, they spelled out Mookie, my nickname for him since I was a toddler. Mark just laughed and pocketed the bracelet. Thanks, Smelly. Ellie, he said, tousling my curly hair. I remember yelling at him and growing red-faced. Then I ran back inside. Don't call me that, I yelled. Those were the last words I said to my brother. Mark and his friends were headed to the Swamp Soiree that night, a tradition at Bartram Forest High School. Each year, a group of popular seniors would throw a big end of the summer bash on the outskirts of the Okie Swamp.
a massive wilderness area in North Florida, about an hour from our home in suburban Jacksonville. The soiree was basically a big kegger with a bonfire where everyone got drunk, smoked pot, and hooked up in their cars, or if they were really wasted in the mud, the area was remote enough that no police ever came by, and there were no locals to piss off. The party's exact location was kept secret, shared only to those fortunate enough to be invited. Swamp soirees were known for their lethal amounts of alcohol and drugs. The kids who threw them always came from wealthy families. They brought multiple kegs of Blue Moon or Stella, handles of top-shelf liquor, bags of dank-ass weed, and occasionally cocaine. Mark and his friends arrived early that night, before most others had shown up. According to his friends, some douchy baseball players pressured him into doing a 20-second keg stand. Shortly afterwards, Mark told his friends he was going to take a piss. He looked pale and sweaty, like he was going to throw up, his friend Eric told me years later. The last time anyone saw him, Mark was stumbling around in the darkened woods, headed deeper into the Okiwee Swamp. Two hours later, his friends drunkenly searched the same wilderness, calling out his name while sinking halfway into the mud. Two days later, my parents searched the area with local law enforcement. Two weeks later, a 400-person search and rescue operation combed the Okeegabee Swamp, equipped with helicopters, John boats, and multiple foot teams. And two years later, the final official search ended this time with cadaver dogs. No one ever found anything. It was like Mark had vanished from existence entirely. One moment, there was a smart, sci-fi-obsessed teenager who wanted to design robots that explored distant planets, get married, and raise three, five kids while living in Miami. And the next moment, nothing. I never participated in an official search for my brother. I was too young. But years later, when I was in college at Florida State, I applied for a summer internship at the Okego Bee National Park, in part to look for anything that might have been missed. I'd always been interested in the wilderness, even though my parents never let me go camping or hiking after what happened. They wouldn't even let me play in the woods of our backyard. But that only made me long for such places even more. Mark loved being outdoors. Being in the wild was one of the only ways to keep his spirit alive. One of my earliest memories was of us hiking together on the trails at Guana River State Park. We'd run out ahead of our parents till it was just us in a wide green world full of sprawling oaks, wide marshes, and endless mystery. As kids, we fantasized about running away to live in the woods like a modern-day version of Swiss Family Robinson. We'd never have to go to school. We could stay up as late as we wanted. It would be total freedom. When I went in for my interview at the Okigabee Park headquarters, the head interp ranger, George Craig, saw my last name and raised his eyebrows. Ellie Brooks. I'm the little sister of Mark Brooks, I said, answering the question that was forming in his bald head. I helped lead the first search party for him, he explained. Really sad. I'm very sorry for your loss. Thanks, I told him I was using the internship as a way of coping with his loss. He hired me on the spot. The job was simple enough. Most of it consisted of manning the park museum or gift shop and talking to visitors. They would come in to browse the dioramas on swamp wildlife or peruse books on bird watching. The park received visitors from all over the country, but most were locals from the nearby town of Oconee, Pop. 604. They were usually older folks who were retired, stopping by day after day just to talk. These locals had all sorts of crazy stories about the Okigobi Swamp. It turned out Oconee was known for two things. Its massive paper mill, which gives the area a noxious fart smell when the wind blows north to south, and its town mascot, the infamous Swamp Wreck. Oconee sits along the eastern edge of the Okigobee Swamp. It's the only human civilization within 50 miles of the wilderness. As such, the town has experienced many unusual animal encounters over the years. Everyone who's ever owned a swimming pool there found a full-grown alligator floating in it at least once. 
Water moccasins sometimes coiled up on the town's roads to catch warmth in the winter. And locals loved to say how the deer population vastly outnumbered the human one. But not all creatures could be explained. Since as far back as 1889, people in the area talked of an eight-foot-tall humanoid alligator that roamed the swamp at night, killing anyone who littered, polluted, or otherwise disrespected the natural ecosystem. They called it the Swamp Wreck. Most reports stated the creature had glowing green eyes, a long, powerful tail that could break bone, and an elongated head full of spear-like crocodilian teeth. The Swamp Wrecks would hunt at night, then returned to its mud hole somewhere deep inside the swamp where no one feared to tread. I first learned of the swamp wrecks from my older brother. As a child, Mark was fascinated with cryptozoology, the study of unverified creatures like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. He used to tell me campfire stories about the wrecks when we were little, how it was millions of years old and would travel throughout the swamp via a series of underwater caves. The stories scared the bejesus out of me, but I loved every second of them. He told me once that he wanted to go on an expedition into the heart of the Okigobi to find the creature. I was the only other person who wanted to go with him. It sounded like the perfect adventure, like something out of my favorite movie, Jurassic Park. Mark and I never went on that expedition. He lost interest in stupid fake monsters by the time he was a senior in high school. I doubt the Rex was even on his mind when he attended the Swamp Soiree that fateful night. Mark never saw the Swamp Rex, but many others have claimed to have seen it over the years. Even though the legend dated back to newspaper articles in the late 1800s, it didn't really become known until March 1989, when Oconee Sugarcane Farmer Bill Howard noticed a tall man wandering the edge of his property late one autumn evening. Howard lived on a remote farm on the outskirts of town right next to the Okigobi Swamp. If it was a man, he'd have to walk miles through mighty thick woods to get to my backyard, Howard told reporters. Keeping his eyes on the figure, the farmer grabbed his 12-gauge shotgun and a camcorder he'd recently got for Christmas. I knew right away something wasn't right about it. It stood like a man, but it had this big tail and it moved with a kind of animal grace, he said. Instead of aiming his gun, Howard raised his camcorder and shot the first known footage of the swamp wrecks. The creature only appeared for five seconds on screen before fleeing deeper into the woods. It was somewhat hard to make out, given the footage was shot from a hundred yards away and during twilight. But even with a low-resolution 1980s era camera, people could see the figure had a tail and an elongated head just like the Swamp Wreck stories of old. Soon afterwards, Bill Howard's footage aired on the local news and gradually spread throughout the country via cryptozoological outlets like the Weekly World News and nascent Internet forums on the paranormal. Eventually, the creature made its way into greater pop culture. In the 1990s, The X-Files aired a monster of the week episode loosely based on the Rex, and the History Channel did a special on it for its Monster Quest series in 2009. Over time, tourists started showing up in Oconee, hoping to catch a glimpse of the creature themselves. Various gift shops opened, selling all kinds of Swamp Rex merchandise, from t-shirts to mugs to alligator hats, even Swamp Rex iPub beer. People came from all over the country. Most were skeptics just looking for another wacky Florida story to tell. But some were true believers. Many even believed the Rex was involved in real-life disappearances tied to the Okigobee area. Since 1980, over 50 people have gone missing in or around the swamp, including my older brother. The most famous case happened in the early 1990s when a wealthy land developer named Jerry Flagler vanished after witnesses last saw him in the Okie Bilby area with some business partners. He was going to illegally cut down them trees, Oconee's town historian Mary Madrigal told reporters. But the wrecks took him before he could. Like Mark, the authorities never found Flagler's body. 
By 2019, when I was working at the Okegobe National Park, the Swamp Rex had become a vital part of Oconee lore. A cartoon version of it was even featured on the town sign. Though they didn't know my relation, many of the locals who visited the park would tell me stories about what really happened to Mark Brooks. Most of them believed the Swamp Rex took my brother because he was disrespecting the land by being at the Swamp Soiree. How come it didn't take anyone else then? I would ask innocently. There were at least a hundred other kids at the party on the night of Mark's disappearance. The locals usually didn't have an answer to that question, or they'd make up some bullshit excuse like, well, maybe he was the only one littering, the only drunken high school student who littered, sure. My brother was officially pronounced dead on January 12, 2012. His cause of death was listed as probable drowning, the only theory which seemed reasonable. The area where Mark was last seen had a lot of deep pools of water connected to the Oconee River. Given his level of inebriation at the time, it was easy to assume he'd simply fallen into one such pool. Mark never learned how to swim, and then his body was later washed out to sea via the river, which runs from the Okigi Swamp to the Gulf of Mexico. Even though I didn't believe the Swamp Rex theory, like Mark before me, I'd come to a realization that the monsters were always a hoax, or a case of mistaken identity. I still couldn't quite live with the drowning explanation. I needed something more. Another part of my job was something called roving, where I walked the trails and boardwalks of the Okegobee National Park, talking to visitors and looking for anything suspect. I did this a few times a week. I didn't carry a firearm. That was for law enforcement, L.E. Rangers only, not in Terp ones and definitely not someone doing a college internship. But I did have a high-powered radio that could contact an L.A. in case of emergencies. And I always wore a flat hat, something you've probably seen from many Smokey the Bear ads, so hikers could spot me a mile away. Sometimes they asked about wildlife and the history of the swamp. Most of the time they came to complain about the lack of certain facilities, like trash cans. I roved the wilderness of the Okegobee Swamp for one reason. I was determined to find something, anything, any remnant of my brother's existence. Even if it was just the stupid charm bracelet, I'd given him the day he disappeared. I knew all the search parties before me had covered the same ground, but there were still plenty of stories of someone finding clues in the exact same location people had searched years earlier. It was possible. It had to be possible. A few months into my job, I was roving the north boardwalk when I saw something out of the corner of my eye. A flash of movement. It looked like a lanky teenager. The figure dashed into the surrounding cypress trees, disappearing in an area that was usually flooded. I half expected the runaway to sink waist-deep in mud, but this was late March, and it hadn't rained in a month. The land was as dry as it would get, and the mysterious individual had moved expertly through it. I reached for my radio, planning to call in the incident. Someone's gone off the designated trail, I would have said. In most situations, this is something an lay ranger would handle. But something made me put the radio down. A lingering feeling. That kid, was it a boy? He almost looked. Mark. I should have taken it as a warning sign. I wish I'd just radioed the L.E. ranger. Instead, I stepped off the boardwalk and started into the woods. There was nothing in the area where the figure was headed. My peace map just showed a blank spot on the northern edge of the swamp. Because of its extreme density and uninhabitable terrain, almost half of the Okegobe is uncharted. Most of its land is hidden beneath four feet of murky brown water and another five feet of black muck, too difficult to walk through for a detailed survey. I looked for the kid in the cypress trees ahead, but couldn't see any movement. I did see the occasional shoe print in the mud, however. It looked like a converse shoe. Definitely not something you'd want in such terrain. The intermittent tracks led deeper and deeper into the swamp. I came across one every ten to twenty yards. At one point, I stopped to take a drink from my Nalgene bottle and was shocked to see a full two hours had passed. 
It was almost 5 p.m. Shit. I was supposed to be back at the park headquarters to start closing procedures 30 minutes ago. How was it already 5? It felt like I'd stepped off the boardwalk only moments before. I started to backtrack. I planned to let an L.E. know about the lost kid, but first, I needed an excuse for being so late. Was I helping a lost hiker find his way back to the trailhead? Did I have to clean up a bunch of trash on the boardwalk? I was about to radio headquarters when I felt my boots slip out from under me and I tumbled down a small muddy hill, my body crashing through a dense thicket of palmetto bushes. Dazed, I struggled to my feet wiping off as much dirt as I could. My green slacks and gray collared shirt had turned black from muck. My flat hat was crushed. My radio was cracked and unusable, and my cell phone was caked in mud. But as soon as I saw my surroundings, I forgot about everything else. I was inside a campsite, almost an acre in size. The place was astonishing. It had an old canvas tent pitched beneath a sprawling live oak, a fire pit, a small garden, a compost station, a dugout latrine, even a plastic tarp for catching rainwater. A series of large ceramic jars stood by the rain catcher. They looked to be storing water. There was no one around. The tent was empty, but I could tell the site was still inhabited. Everything was well maintained, and the fire pit had some recently burned coals in its center. Who could be living here, I wondered. Was it the boy I was chasing? Was he hiding in the bushes somewhere nearby, afraid of getting caught? No. Whoever had been living at the site had been there for years, perhaps even decades. The camp was surrounded by dense palmetto bushes and a makeshift wall of driftwood. It was so well camouflaged that I realized I had already walked past it before falling down the hill. Hello, I said tentatively. There was no response. Sicked dies drone from the nearby trees. I was about to leave when something along the far edge of camp caught my attention. It appeared to be a crude statue carved out of an old tree trunk and decorated with various objects. As I approached, its details came into focus. The statue depicted a humanoid figure with an alligator's head and a long, muscular tail, clearly meant to be the swamp wreck. There were various objects around it. Some had been laid at the creature's feet, a moldy tennis shoe, a broken compass, part of a child's lunchbox. Others were draped over its body, a baseball cap, a canteen, a golden necklace bearing a cross. They were arrayed in a specific pattern, as if the statue was some kind of a shrine. I crept closer, almost mesmerized by the mysterious display, and that's when I saw it, a bracelet made of Lego blocks hanging around the statue's left wrist. My breath stopped. All noise faded. I reached out and grabbed the bracelet. The letters were faint, but still legible. M-O-O-K-I-E. This was the very bracelet I had given my older brother the day he disappeared. My skin felt prickly with fear and worry. I put the bracelet in my vest pocket, then turned around, looking in all directions. Mark! There was no response. The campsite was perfectly still. My eyes scanned the tent, the garden, the compost heap, the latrine, the, uh, a male figure, hidden in shadow, standing at the edge of the woods, motionless. I gasped. How long had he been there? It was too dark to make out the man's features. Could it be? Mark? Somehow I already knew the answer. There was a loud hisses. Then, very slowly, the figure stepped into the light. A six-foot-tall man, mid to late fifties, with a muscular frame and scraggly, graggy hair. A hermit, his wiry body was covered in dirt, mud, and bug bites. And he was completely naked. The hermit stared at me with bloodshot eyes, his expression unreadable. Angry, scared, confused. My stomach wrenched with fear. Every alarm bell in my brain was ringing simultaneously. Just so sorry, sorry, I stammered, backing away with my hands up. I didn't mean to. I can leave. The hermit opened his cracked lips to reveal rotten yellowed teeth. He hissed, producing a noise so low and resonant it sounded like a giant snake. 
I jumped back, falling on my behind at the foot of the shrine. No, please. But the hermit didn't attack. Instead, he grabbed something from within the tent, something big. It looked like a pile of clothes. When he brought it out, I nearly screamed. It was a suit made of thick reptilian skin. The hermit had stitched together pieces of alligator hide to form a swamp rex costume. It had long sleeves that ended in clawed gloves, a hood made from a gator skull, webbed feet, even a tail. The monster suit was ugly as sin, but also intricate, terrifying, mesmerizing. The hermit started to put it on. His movements were slow and deliberate, like this was all part of some sort of ritual. What? What are you? I crawled backwards, keeping my eyes on him the whole time. My fingers brushed against a piece of driftwood, a potential weapon. The hermit stepped forward, wearing his swamp wreck suit. He looked like a mutant from the bowels of hell. The man hissed again, his voice amplified by the gator skull. It was louder, more guttural. I grabbed hold of the driftwood piece and stood up. The branch was small but solid, like a billy club. I raised it up defensively, and Mark's bracelet fell from my vest pocket. The hermit stared at the bracelet and hissed again. He took a step back. Cautiously, I picked up the bracelet with my free hand and held it out so the hermit could see it more clearly. It hung loosely from my fingertips. Where? Where did you get this? No response. Do you know Mark Brooks? I asked, trying to sound a bit more confident. With his gloved hand, the hermit pointed to the ceramic jar standing beneath the rain catcher. The ones that held water. I, I don't understand. Can you... can you speak? The hermit didn't say anything. He walked over to the jars, his reptilian hands brushing across the top of each one until he tipped the last jar over. Crash! A gallon of slimy liquid poured out, along with a pile of big white sticks. No. Not sticks. Bones. Inside the jar was a complete human skeleton. Its bones all meshed together. Oh, F, I stammered. This was his answer. I was looking at Mark, spilled across the ground like some carnivore's leftovers. No, no, no. Hiss, the hermit raised his gloved hands. His eyes shined within the gator skull. My whole body shook. Sweat poured down my face. This was it the end. I had my answer and I would pay the ultimate price for it. Until I saw him, the boy who had run from the boardwalk so many hours ago. The one I'd been following, it was Mark, still eighteen years old and wearing the same faded jeans and long-sleeved shirt from the night he disappeared. He looked at me, then pointed at something lying against the tent. A shotgun? I threw the driftwood at the hermit as hard as I could. Then sprinted for the tent. Five feet, three, two, one. I grabbed the weapon with shaky hands. There was just enough time to turn. Bang! Blood splattered my face. The blast threw the hermit backwards. His six-foot-tall body fell to the ground with a thud. It all happened so fast, I didn't even realize I'd pulled the trigger until afterwards. Smoke curled from the barrel of the shotgun. I let out a sharp cry that was half cough, half sob. The hermit lay motionless a few feet away. I pumped the shotgun a second time as I stepped towards him, fingers still on the trigger. He never got up. Afterwards, I looked all over camp for my Mark's ghost, calling out his name. But aside from that split-second moment before the attack, I never saw my brother again. To this day, I wonder if I ever saw him at all. Perhaps it was all nerves. Perhaps my brother was just a manifestation of the my intense fear upon meeting the real swamp wrecks. Looking back, I'm struck by how similar the hermit's campsite was to the Swiss Family Robinson-style hallmark and I had imagined we'd live in when we were little. Aside from the obscene shrine and jars, of course. The police cordoned off the entire site the next day. Aside from Mark, they found the remains of twelve other people, even wealthy land developer. Jerry Flagler. News vans came from all over. Word of the Swamp Rex's discovery spread internationally. Most importantly, our family finally had a proper burial for my brother that provided some much-needed closure. My parents and I wept for weeks on end. 
So far, the police have not been able to identify the hermit, even after analyzing dental records, completing a DNA profile, and sending his picture to various news outlets. There have been numerous theories, of course. Some said the hermit was Michael Jenkins, an escaped mental patient who vanished from a South Florida asylum 40 years ago, though the photos didn't bear much resemblance. Others claimed various serial killers who had never been caught, like the Zodiac. Some even believed the hermit was planted by the federal government to cover up the existence of the real creature, but no one came forward with any solid evidence. Nothing verifiable. The hermit has remained as mysterious as the swamp creature he had pretended to be for so many years. I've since moved clear across the country. I currently reside in the vast metropolis of Los Angeles. I don't go hiking anymore. I never go camping. I hardly ever even leave the house. But each night I dream. I dream that I'm still deep in that swamp, alone in my cold reptilian skin. I am the hermit, and the thing that worries me the most. I enjoy it. I could not sleep. It was 1, 41 a.m. I turned over to try to sleep. The next thing, my body went dead with no movement. Nothing. There was no life in my body. My feet floated up and my whole body followed. I was floating upward. I could move my eyes. There was black all around me except for the lights floating past me. I could look from left to right. I looked straight up. There was a triangle-shaped object ahead of me. There were lights all under the object. I then blacked out. The next thing I know, I woke up in a dark room. They placed me on a table. All of a sudden, my whole body started vibrating from head to toe. I would make a groaning sound ever so often. I could not see them, but I know they were there. When I was placed back in my bed, I was waking up feeling like I had been unconscious. The next day, I was very tired. The whole week, I was tired. When I woke up the next morning, the thought of what had happened that night did not come to mind. I got in the shower and started praying the incident came back to me. It was so strong that it stopped my prayers. I was speechless. When they take you, you have no control. Sometimes you can see what is going on, and sometimes you can't. Ever since I can remember, I have been abducted many times before. They are just blocked out. Only in these last dozen years, I can remember some things about the abductions. I cannot remember the day or time, but this abduction was the one that changed me forever. This happened in 2014. I was watching television, and the next second the power went off all over the house. My TV has to reboot, so I didn't want to wait, and I just turned it off. The next thing I know, I was floating out of my room. When they were taking me, it was well lit. I was laying on a table, and they were standing on either side of me. There seemed to be one on the right side of my head as I was floating out from where they had taken me. I woke up in my bed. I still couldn't move my body, but I could move my head. I looked toward my bedroom door and saw the shadow of an alien. The head was large. The arms were long and thin. The hands were thin with long, thin fingers. I yelled out because I thought it was my son. I kept calling his name, and no one answered. When I first yelled out, the alien stood still. He did not move. I started to get frustrated because I thought it was my son and I wasn't getting an answer. The next minute there was a flash of light coming from where the being was standing and he was gone. I got up and went to my son's room and he was asleep. It wasn't him who cast that shadow. The next morning I was on the road in front of my job. There was a sheriff's car parked between two buses. I drove on into the parking lot and was backing up to park. There was only one car parked on the left of me. I started texting my daughter a message. I looked up. There were two joggers running right next to my car. They ran so close they could have hit my car. They ran together as if they were sewn together. I could not see their faces. I never saw them coming or going. It hasn't happened since. It was kind of strange for that to happen. After my abduction, I have an allergic reaction to something they used on me.
I have had posterior bleeding and severe pain in my female organs. The pain is so severe I can't walk, and it travels from there to my rear. I have seen apparitions. I have seen dark figures in my room. I have had ear ringing when certain aircraft fly over. I see flashes of light at night when I'm out. I have learned to ignore them. I can be driving and don't know how I got from point A to B. My daughter would hear strange noises coming from my room, like operating room sounds. My TV would turn itself off sometimes. It's been nine years and I still suffer the horrific effects of that one abduction. I live in Fayetteville, North Carolina. This abduction occurred in January 2014. So I'm a 25 years old female and this strange thing happened to me just this afternoon. I often take nice and relaxing strolls through the forest on Sundays together with my dad, which is some kind of tradition since my childhood and today was no exception. Sometimes my uncle joins us on those strolls, and today he did so too. We walked down one of our usual paths, and at a split of the path we met some old man my dad had, and uncle obviously knew. The man was walking the opposite direction back towards the village. They did some small talk, and then we headed further along the path through the forest, my dad and uncle being a bit ahead of me, and talking to each other while I took some photos of the beautiful nature around us, in the process walking a bit slower than them and stopping a few times. There were a few times I was a good distance behind them, which at that point I didn't realize that it could have been dangerous. At some point on the path, we turned to head back home, and as we walked a bit, I stopped for a moment to take a picture of the tree is next to the path. Then after taking the picture, I, for some reason, looked a bit left and was absolutely shocked the moment I turned my head, because farther in the forest, leaned against one of the trees, stood that old man we'd met before, absolutely still, just staring intensely back at me without any movement and without saying a word. After the initial shock, I decided to just look away and keep on walking, not daring to look behind us most of the way back. I didn't tell my father or uncle about it, but it was just such a weird experience. What scares me the most about it is that I don't have any real explanation as to why that man had been following us, and even more, why he was doing so not on the path, but just within the forest. And if he didn't have anything creepy in mind, why he didn't say anything but just stare. I'm just so glad that I wasn't walking alone. This happened almost 15 years ago when I was seven. My best friend's mom would babysit my brother and I before and after school. My mom would usually drop us off at her house around 6 a.m., she would make us breakfast, and the three of us would walk to our elementary that was less than ten minutes away. For preface, we would walk through an adjacent neighborhood, through this small wooded area that had an enclosed bridge, and that led us to the back of our elementary. The elementary sits back in a long tree line that runs about half a mile north and another mile south. Anyways, we're about to get to the turn where we walk into the tree line to the bridge, and this guy comes cruising down the street. At first, I don't even think we noticed him, considering how young we were, but right when he's about ten feet away from us, he slows down to virtually zero miles per hour. There was nothing that stood out about his appearance, either. He was middle-aged, white male, very generic. Well, we all stare at the car and start walking super slowly. If we stop, he would stop. If we walk, he would slowly go. During this whole ordeal, he has a blank expression on his face. Not anger, no smirk, just this sinister deadness almost. This went on for probably five minutes because we were too scared he'd jump out of the car if we turned our backs on him and I was mainly scared for my little brother. Finally, he speeds off and we run the rest of the way to school. Immediately go to the principal's office, and at this point we are bawling. We gave them our version of the story, his description, and whatever else a seven-year-old is actually capable of giving. 
They take action by calling the cops and our parents. The cops come and we explain where it happened in the story again. Then our parents ended up taking us out of school. From then on, we weren't allowed to walk to school anymore and our babysitter would take us. The reason this ended up being so creepy is because apparently there had been reports around that time of a guy who would sit under the bridge. We walked over right by the school and watched people. They didn't know if he was homeless or if it was this other guy who we encountered. They never caught the guy and we never saw him again. Whether this was a more sinister encounter than we thought or he was just bored, we will never know. I do know how bizarre it was, though, who stares at children that intently while driving by. He even turned his head around as he was driving. By his chance of luck, no other cars drove by during this whole situation. But weirdo driver, let's not ever meet again.